Hello everyone and welcome back once again to Grape Juice, Grape Juice, Wine and Jazz. Although, as you've heard from the initial musical indication on this episode, this episode is not going to be entirely jazzy. Um, it's been quite a theme, actually, in recent episodes. Um, actually, a fairly long tradition in the 30 or so episodes that have been going on now for about a year, um, to include classical music as well, because often um, classical can, uh, can be a little bit more regional and a little bit more forgiving in terms of sense of place, because usually it has a stronger European tradition um, than jazz does. Um, and a lot of the lines that we have are from Europe, and usually a lot of classical music is expressing a sense of place, um, and particularly from composers from a certain region. So um, today, in our episode, um, we're going to do a slightly different approach, where we not only, because and I'm sure many listeners to Grape Juice may be slightly unsettled, or perhaps even a little bored by the sporadic nature in which music is selected for this show. And so... Um, for the music, as much, of the, as much as for the wine, I want to introduce kind of more of a cohesive theme and more of a narrative, rather than just picking songs that in some way pertain to the, um, to the wine. So just picking a song called Pinot Noir and shoving it in, I think, maybe needs to be revamped a little bit. So um, alongside uh, the exploration of our wine today, we're also going to be exploring um, a composer from the region where the wine was made. So um, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but basically, um, as you've seen from the title, we are exploring Champagne once again. Now, we have um, explored Champagne twice before on this show, once with Champagne Guy de Chassé, which is um, a small récolton manipulant um, from, or actually I think maybe one step up from that, um, producing uh, Grand Cru Champagne in the village of Louvois, um, which is imported pretty much exclusively by Cornian Barrow with their, old lab- with their own label slapped on it. Thank God, because unfortunately I have to say that the French label, or at least the, the kind of the label that is not used by Cornian Barrow, is pretty damn awful. Um, anyway, we are returning to the world of Grand Cru Champagne, um, but in a slightly different sense. Um, uh, the episode after that was on uh, one of my favorite champagne houses, uh, Joseph Perrier, and on their 2008 vintage champagne, which is one of the most textured, creamy, luscious champagnes that I've ever tasted. So that is goddamn amazing. Um, but we are definitely leaning on to more of the kind of non-vintage side of things. Rather than um, following the story of a particular house, excuse me, too popular. Oh, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> rather than exploring the story of a particular house or um, maison, we're going to be exploring cépage a little more and kind of sense of place a little more. Because... Terroir is is very, very complex in Champagne. My God, I need to get rid of the sounds. There we are. Um, Champagne is something that's very, very complex uh, in terms of terroir. Um, And people forget that, you know, um, the region that I'm exploring at the moment, um, with some help, um, much needed help, uh, is Burgundy. And that is very well known because uh, there's a lot of variance between different parcels. Um, Champagne is less about that, but there is still very much a culture of individual parcel naming, etc., that you don't get in Bordeaux. So in that in that sense, it's kind of a hybrid between Bordeaux and Burgundy, where you have larger regions such as the Côte de Blanc, Vallée de la Marne, um, Montagne de Rams, each producing a different kind of concept or idea of Champagne, um, which is kind of less focused on individual parcels, but at the same time, there is enough complexity, undulation, variance in the terroir 
and perhaps to more of an extent than in Bordeaux, that means that individual parcels do have um, significance. Um, but today we're going to be exploring perhaps the, not the lesser well-known, but the perhaps more commercially underappreciated virgin style of champagne. So NV champagnes are usually made up of, the, um, a lot of popular styles are usually made up of a triad or uh, the mixing of the two of the popular grape varieties, Pinot Meunier, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. Joseph Perrier, for example, um, and Paul Roger have um, a perfect triad, a third of each. And a lot of champagnes um, that focus on a lighter, fresher, more Chardonnay-driven style have um, 60 Chardonnay to 40 Pinot Noir. Some are even doing 100% Meunier, which tastes amazing if you go to the right people, such as um, Saumon, Salmon, um, but in French it would be said Saumon. They're quite a famous 100% Meunier house. And there are quite a lot of them because it's a fascinating grape, perhaps not as age-worthy or structured as the others, but it gives a very specific, youthful, sweet floral character to um, the wines, a sort of a distinct fruit that is different from the Pinot. But the one, and rosé, of course, is extremely popular, vintage champagne as well. But the one thing that is perhaps um, more underappreciated than others is Blanc de Noir, which is champagne made entirely from the Pinot Noir grape, obviously producing a much darker style. The traditional perception of champagne, and one of the most popular variants apart from regular NVs, um, is Blanc de Blanc. You know, a lot of champagnes, their NVs are Blanc de Blanc anyway, which is 100% from the Chardonnay grape. Because the traditional perception style of champagne is zingy, racy, fresh, citric, um, bubbly, and fresh, which is exactly what Chardonnay provides. Lighter fruits, golden and yellow fruits, white flowers, etc. Pinot Noir, on the other hand, is producing darker flavors, chocolates, red berries, etc. And trust me, yes, you can taste chocolate in champagne, which is what we're going to taste in a minute. Because um, unlike other episodes... Um, we have actually um, tasted this champagne before. It's not a first trial out because it's less about, it's more about the kind of the, sh the style of the champagne itself because um, rather than the house, as I've said, um, it's more about the, the kind of general style of champagne rather than a kind of particular perception of it um, because it is underappreciated, I think. Um, and do, there are some amazing Blanc de Noir Champagne out there, don't get me wrong. Um, but, it's very understandable because it is a less accessible style at the end of the day. It's darker. It's not what one would expect. There are some examples such as, I will have to unfortunately name and shame here, Philippona, make a 2008 Blanc de Noir. It's pretty damn fusty, I have to say. Um, very heavy Blanc de Noir Champagne. A lot of them can have this chocolate aroma to it, which for a lot of people can be very off-putting and not what you expect in a champagne. Some of them do it very well. For example... Uh, naming and glorifying here. To this day, the best Blanc de Noir Champagne I've ever tasted is Gallimard Perifis, G-A-L-L-I-M-A-R-D, which you can get at St. Andrew's Wine Company, by the way. Their non-vintage champagne is way better than any other of their cuvee. I would love to try the demi-sec in the vintage as well. Um, it is perhaps one of the most beautiful expressions of Blanc de Noir I've ever, I've ever tasted. It is different, unique, and distinctly Pinot while being accessible. Um, whereas the champagne that we're going to taste today is more on the chocolatey, deeper, forest fruit kind of uh, scale of things, Gallimard is the crunchiest berry juice you will ever that will ever pass your lips. It is a beautiful, beautiful champagne. It combines the freshness that you would want 
um, with this kind of crunchy sort of strawberry um, berry meringue kind of thing. It's, it's simply mesmerizing without any of that kind of chocolatey depth that would put off a lot of people. Um, and it's simply gorgeous, and it's only 30 quid, and it's only going to go up. Gallimard Perifis, imported by Thorman Hunt. Amazing, amazing champagne. The only um, is targeted at small retailers, um, which is good. Um, and Thorman Hunt, at the moment, is still fairly local and fairly provincial. So um, you can find it at the Whiskey Exchange, I believe, if you want to get your hands on it. Um, it's, it's absolutely stellar. But St. Andrew's Wine Company, first port of call, because I think it is a little cheaper. Um, I say that as a firm representative of the of the company. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's uh, as we do on grape juice. We champion the lesser well known, and we are championing Blanc de Noir. Um, so basically, to say that if you want a champagne style that is not more complex, because you know the villages of Mesnil sur and Auger, for example, which are also Grand Cru, um, uh, are known for Chardonnays that are extremely complex and dark. In fact. I gave uh, a, a, a Grand Cru Mesnil sur Auger 100% Chardonnay Champagne blind to a good friend of mine, and he thought it was Pinot dominant. You know, some Chardonnays can really outperform, but usually when something is Blanc de Noir, apart from a few exceptions, you notice it. You notice the depth, you notice the deepness. Same thing as depth. Um, um, and that can be off-putting to some people, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, I'm here to champion it because I think that it is worthy uh, of the limelight. And I think it is probably even less considered or perhaps marketed um, than the vintage champagnes. Vintage will always, you know, something that is aged will never not be glamorous in terms of wine. But it's difficult to market Blanc de Noir because who is your target market, you know? Um, not even in terms of marketing, but it's just difficult to fit Blanc de Noir into the kind of traditional champagne branding unless you are someone who really loves a pinot dominant uh, bubbly so that's the thing um but basically today we're discovering uh, talking about pinot noir we're discovering the montagne de rams region uh, of which there are many grand cru vineyards two very very famous ones that produce pinot noir uh we at the right at the bottom the two famous ones uh, that have the southeastern exposure that means the grapes get a lot of ripeness because of course of course champagne is very cool are Ambonnet, which is the home to um, small champagne houses such as Paul Desun that produce really, really meaty wines that aren't 100% Pinot Noir, but definitely have that Grand Cru meatiness that Ambonnet provides. And the other one, which is the very appropriately named, uh, receiving much hilarity from the British clientele, Bouzy, B-O-U-Z-Y. Yep, that's right. Um, Bouzy and Ambonnet are producing what the Montagne de Rams is famous for, which is big old chunky pinot for your champagne. Um, and a to produce a Blanc de Noir from Montagne de Rams, unlike other regions, perhaps such as Marne, is ambitious because it is inevitably going to give you that really deep, heavy, concentrated, darker style of champagne, if I can say that. I know that's a little bit of a paradox and uh, you know a weird thing to say, but trust me, that's that's what these wines produce. So the Montagne is interesting. Uh, it's basically around the town of Reims, uh, R-E-I-M-S. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's not Reims. It's, I think it's Reims. Um, so, yeah. Um, and basically, uh, the Romans, it's chalky hillsides. And the Romans dug out these hillsides in order to build their towns in France. And you were left with these craters, or crayères. Um, and basically, they have 
this sort of cool climate, but with villages such as Bouzy and Ambonnet, a lot of exposure to the sun. So of course you're still getting the fresh zippiness that Champagne is famous for, the cool climate, um, but with um, uh, an ample amount of sun exposure, because Pinot Noir is obviously, you know, even though Chardonnay is a more muscular grape, at the end of the day, Pinot Noir also, it, it needs sun to ripe. Um, you know, it's even a problem in Burgundy, which is much farther south than Champagne. Um, so the sun is needed for, for Pinot Noir, even though it is a thinner-skinned grape. Um, so basically, yeah, Montagne de Rams is famous for Pinot. Um, that's what it does well, for whatever reason. Uh, Pinot has just become popular there. Um, and today we are tasting a very interesting example. Uh, more plugging, I know. Um, St. Andrew's Wine Company has just received a huge shipment of champagnes from uh, Sip Champagnes. Um, 24, in fact, and I've been starting to work through them steadily. Um, and two that we've got from a little partnership called Homo Bula, or L'homme est, est une boule, which, which means man is a bubble. Um, you know, obviously, imagery connecting with champagne here, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's kind of like a cooperative or a sort of collaboration or or sort of umbrella that controls these two champagne houses, Champagne Bonheur and Champagne Paul Cluet. Um, Paul Cluet is the one that we are trying today because it's based in Bouzy and uh, producing Pinot-dominant champagnes. And today we are um, tasting, you know, not only their NV that is based on Bouzy wines, but their Blanc de Noir. Um, so Paul Cluet have the Selection à Grand Reserve, which is, you know, posh name for their NV. Then they have a Bouzy MV, which is their Bouzy Grand Cru Blanc de Noir. They have a Bouzy Vintage. And then they also have a Prestige, which is um, come from a single parcel in Bouzy called Les Hauts Chemins, um, the high roads. Um, uh, and it's very special because it's extra brut, but it's aged for 10 years minimum. Um, but it's still relatively cheap for Prestige Cuffe, 45 quid, which is NV price for, for example, Bollinger. Um, so that's very interesting. Um, so the, the basically this is their Prestige because it's a single parcel Grand Cru um, Champagne. A very Burgundian approach. 100% Pinot Noir, obviously, malolactic fermentation and um, uh, thermoregulated libeldy blob. Um, this is very interesting, although it, um, I'm not going to talk about taste yet, obviously, but um, this is a single parcel, Pinot, Blanc de Noir, from a Grand Cru village famed for Grand Cru Pinot Noir, and it has also been aged for 10 years minimum. It's based on the 2007 and 2008 vintages, and it was only disgorged last year. So this thing has been aging on the lees for 11, 12 years which is pretty damn cool, and it's only now been disgorged. Um, and it's, it's simply amazing. Um, for me, in, in, in terms of the Premier Grand Cru classification in Champagne, um, of course it's the classic thing about concentration, but it's also about elegance, because Champagne very often, in cheap Champagnes or Champagnes that are not Premier Grand Cru, the things that can often overshadow the experience is the intenseness of the mousse, and the acid. The bubbles can sort of overtake, pricklify pin, pins and needles your mouth, meaning that you can't get below the deeper flavors. With Grand Cru, and also with Lee's aging, which is so important, that harshness, that kind of youthful vigor dies down. 
so that you get a truly elegant wine that just satisfies you rather than attacks you. Of course, some people want that hit, and that's what MVs are for, but prestige cuvées are not about that, um, and they're made for they're made for someone who wants to delve deeper into the wine. They're not for connoisseurs, because we can all be connoisseurs if we want to. Um, so yeah, you can, you can say that term if you want, but basically prestige cuvées are made, you know, you can drink them every day if, if you want to, but they're made for someone who wants to get into the nitty-gritty of champagne, see what can happen when you age it, because my god, champagne can age. You know, all the, uh, there's a fair amount of alcohol, but think of, you know, there's a good bit of acid in there, you know, it's, it's got structure, champagne does have structure. Um, so it can, it can age goddamn well. It may not have tannin, but it does have structure, undeniably. Um, so that's why this wine is very, very exciting and very unique. Um, so today we're not, you know, we've, we've already explored on grape juice how champagne can age. Um, with the Joseph Perrier 2008 Cuvée Royale Brut Vintage, for example, things became creamier and deeper. There was still a tart berry characteristic, um, and I wouldn't say anything that had mellowed particularly, but there was just depth, basically. Depth, it had gained weight as it had aged, and um, a, a sort of round, more cohesive structure. Um, so we've explored that, but today we're going to see what happens to Blanc de Noir champagnes as they age, and what Grand Cru Bouzy means for that, and how that manifests itself in the wine. So that's pretty cool. Now, now we've got past the viticultural and vinification stage of things, um, let's get on to the musical theme. So the first track I played you was um, one of 24 piano and violin caprice, um, number 19, called Bauern Tanz, um, by the composer Henri Marteau. And he is very important today because he is actually from the town of Reims, um, surrounding which are the Montagne from which the grapes in the Champagne that we're going to taste are sourced, if that makes sense. So I, I just, it was nice because I, I always love having a local composer. So he was a French violinist and he obtained Swedish citizenship in 1915. Um, his father, a Frenchman, was a well-known amateur violinist in Reims and took a great interest in musical affairs. His mother was a Berliner, an excellent pianist who had studied under Clara Schumann, of course, very famous. Um, so basically, uh, Henri Marteau uh, lived from 1874 to 1934, basically operating within the late Romantic period. Um, and you can very much hear that, and I love that period. I love the kind of turn of the century, especially English composers, that, that sort of Edwardian string quartet, sort of, ooh, you know, vigorous you know, sort of Café Royale tea room type vibe. Um, but this is a particularly Champenois and Rams approach to that. Um, so Henri Marteau was also a composer. He didn't compose a lot, but he did compose. And of course, just like aged Blanc de Noirs from Bouzy Grand Cru, um, Henri Marteau is less well known. So that's why we're including him. So we're actually going to be playing three of his uh, 24 Caprice, um, two more in the episode. Um, but before we move on to the tasting section, we're just going to take a different angle to his musical career. Um, a serenade, I believe it's called Serenade of the Winds. Um, it's his Opus 20. And I think it's, it's sort of a, it's a three-movement orchestral piece. It's not quite a symphony, but it's sort of, you know, a sort of orchestral ensemble piece. Um, so I'm just going to play the second part of that, which is the Adagietto. Um, and I hope you enjoy it very much. Get yourself in the mood for the tasting section. Um, think about, you know, the rolling hills of Rams. I, I know I say this every time. <laughs> every time we move on to the tasting section and I put in the first song, I say, 
imagine you're there. You know, you know the drill by now, folks. Um, basically, I just think it's very nice to have a very locally focused champagne accompanied by a very locally focused composer. So, please enjoy Henri Marteau's uh, Serenade, Opus 20, second movement, Adagetto, and we will be back afterwards to taste Paul Clouet's Bouzy Prestige Cuvée.
And we're back. Um, I must say I'm already enjoying the classical format of this episode because it makes me feel like a BBC um, presenter on Classical FM, which is always fun. Um, so I should really be saying, that was Jorge Maltos, Serenade, Movement the Second, Maggiagetto. Let me know if that's sexier than my other voice. Um, so, without further ado, let's get on to the tasting section. First of all, I have to say that um, Homo Lubis, or what, what's their name again? Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, the man is a bubble. Um, they've got their marketing, well, not marketing, just packaging beautifully done. It's such a classy, classy package. Um, the Paul Cluet for exa- um, bottle, for example, is, uh, as opposed to their other uh, champagne, Bonaire, going for a much more Charles Heidzik approach in terms of the bottle, where it's a slightly fatter bottom and a thinner, slightly more kind of squared-off top. Um, so it's it's sort of less less Burgundian-like and sort of a bit fatter at the bottom. Um, but it's still extremely classy. It's very dark, you know. Um, everything is this sort of slate coal-like black with a kind of bright white and then embossed gold. Oh, just gorgeous. And then a very kind of um, sandy, chocolatey foil. It's just absolutely classy, effortless. All that for 45 quid. I still think that this is pretty pretty cool steel um, for what it is, which is, after all, a prestige cuvee, of, um, albeit a small house. Um, so I've just poured it into the glass. Um, this has been in the fridge overnight. Still a good amount of bubbles, even though I don't have a proper stopper. Ooh, nice a bit of a onomatopoeia there. Not onomatopoeia. Um, rhyming? <laughs> um, the most immediate noticeable thing about Blanc de Noir, most Blanc de Noir, when you pour it in the glass, is that dark colour. Usually champagne is, um, oh god, pale lemon, whatever you want to call it. You live your own life, kids. Um, but Blanc de Noir is usually distinctly more golden in colour. The great thing about Gallimard Perifis that I was um, talking about earlier is it literally looks berry coloured. I mean, it, it has this amazing pinkish berry hue. Um, amazing. But this is what you would expect from Blanc de Noir, which is a kind of sort of darker golden colour, sort of um, deep lemon moving into a, a kind of lightish gold. Um, not much green, just a kind of very pure colour, um, but the bubbles are fading already, so I should probably stick my nose in pretty quickly. Um, but I'm having it in the Italesque glass, you know, not a flute, God forbid, or a coupe, God forbid even more. Um, giving it a full run, um, having given it a, a day to settle and kind of mellow, even though there's still enough bubbles in it, a good amount of fridge time. Um, and let's see if we had the nose that we had yesterday, which was... Yeah. Ooh, that's changed a bit. So, a lot of people will be put off by this nose, but personally I love it. You are literally smelling milk chocolate. An earthy, deep, almost soil-like sweetness. It's amazing. It's just so deep and dark. Um, there is no harshness. I mean, this has obviously been open a day, but there's no harshness. There's no bubbles. Um, of course, there's bubbles. There's no sort of acidic attack, or it, it feels fully open, basically. Still, this could age beautifully and become even more dark and beautiful and chocolatey and complex, but yeah, basically it's a more almost like soily, fruitcakey, chocolatey type deepness, depth. 
And then over the top, you've got a bit of marmalade, which is coming from the age. A touch of apricot as well, and um, not crunchy, but certainly ripe berries. I don't actually know about the 2007-8, oh, well, duh, of course we know about the 2008 champagne vintage. That was stellar. 07, I also believe, was good. So um, these grapes are coming from, you know, uh, uh, anyway in Champagne, a year that had enough ripeness to produce complexity. And my God, this wine is complex. It's definitely developed a bit more where I'm getting more of that kind of fruit cakey, soily chocolatiness. And then the marmalade is coming out a lot more. Simply stunning. Um, and just so, so unique. And definitely, um, I, I never want to say acquired taste or not kind of the mainstream, because you don't know what people like, but this is certainly not the common perception when it comes to champagne. And the good thing, again, is about this is this is basically common Grand Marc NV price, 45, 40 to 45. Um, so it's still relatively, in the grand scheme of things, for people who are looking for champagne, affordable in massive inverted commas. Um... It's just, it's such a unique nose. There's also a bit of, um, there's even a bit of lychee, a, a bit of kind of hedgerow as well. Um, but just, just a kind of earthiness, which is just so distinctive and something you really, that really needs to, I need to shout from the rooftops about because it's good, it's a good earthiness. It's like, it's like, um, it's like going into the allotment on a spring evening, you know, just... Yeah, says me who obviously owns an allotment. Just soil and earth and sweet hedgerow and honeysuckle. You know, you're sitting, you're sitting, in front of your allotment on the terrace, having rye bread with marmalade on it, and uh, you know, a, a cup of hot chocolate, and you're you're smelling the kind of sweet, thick summer evening air. Really, really evocative. Let's put it en bouche. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's changed a lot from yesterday. It's very much a wine of meditation and it's very much a fine wine now. A fine wine, as they say in Scotland. There is still obviously good bit of freshness, good bit of acid there. But again, it is this chocolatey profile. Merging into the kind of marmalade. Like a, like seriously, like a kind of stinky malted rye bread earthiness. Not for everyone. But still, not despite, but beneath all of that, or enveloped throughout all of that, essentially a champagne, which is fresh, light, easy. So I think that these, obviously these lazy, bready, marmalade -y, slightly, not musty, but 
textured elements have come from that extended lees aging, you know? It's just brought out something so beautiful. In its youth, this will, will have been, you know, dark, but probably more on that, the marmalade will have been like a kind of apricot-y type thing, or maybe sort of more peachy. But it, with age, it's just morphed into something so magical, um, so unique. It's funny because I opened I opened this yesterday and I thought, oh god, it's another stinky blanc de noir. You know, I just I I gave my I had the reaction that exactly that I'm trying to discourage in all of you. Also, at the same time, you have to remember that if you do not like a wine, that is totally valid and you should stop drinking that wine. But what I'm seeing now is a common thing which I have been caught out by so many times is drinking wine too quickly if you leave it for a second and maybe even for a third which is pushing it because a, a wine probably should have opened up by then third day you're missing out there is something there that you could have tasted that you've that, that has gone down your gullet too early you know and after all this is a prestige cuvée champagne um coming from a blend of old vintage years that has been on the on the lees for 10 years it's it's meant to be appreciated this is meant to be drunk over a few hours you know um and I would say it's not, you know, all champagne is marketed as an aperitif, but I, I would say this is a meaty champagne. I mean, you could have this with a main course. You could have this with trout, like a heavier, smokier, obviously not overwhelming, but a, corner, a, a slightly more meaty fish. Um, maybe even, um, perhaps not tuna. Trout is still fairly light, but also full of substance and nutrients and kind of natural flavors that you don't get in whitefish. This would be a great main course wine. Flick out a magnum of that. Now, onto the Grand Cru side of things. This is just so effortless. I was writing my notes yesterday, and when a champagne is perfect, Perfect. You can describe it as elegant. Elegance is a very distinct feeling. It feels like you're being hopelessly caressed by a wine. You know, you don't have to think about it because it's just so seamless and it's it's seductive. It's flirtatiously beautiful. This is not that because it's a meaty boy. The texture is great, but, you know, obviously a Blanc de Noir is not holding it back. You know, a, a Blanc de Noir can obviously be elegant, but I think that there is... It's not quite at the elegant stage of things. I think the word I came up with was classy. This is properly classy. Um, elegance implies a sort of effortlessness. Perhaps even a lack of contemplation. Whereas I feel like this is very much a vino di meditazione, where you are thinking about it. If you were to just glug this straight from the bottle and not think about it, you probably wouldn't reach back for it because it is that just so sort of different and meaty and chocolatey and, and earthy. Um, and as I've said, the two solutions to that are leave it overnight, drink it over many hours, decant it even, that helps champagnes, or have it with food. This would be amazing with food, you know? Um... Yeah, so the Grand Cru has definitely come out. Obviously, the age has brought it, still essentially fresh, blah, 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 but the age has brought it a kind of, 
a sort of calm, a kind of zen where we're not worrying about, oh, too many bubbles. Like the moose is extremely fine. The bubbles are tiny. Um, but obviously, this was disgorged last year. So Lee's aging um, isn't going to make the bubbles decrease. Obviously, bottle age is the thing that takes the gas gradually out of a wine, you know? But nevertheless, this just does feel resolved. And with like five years of bottle age, it will just become completely mesmerizing. It might even gain weight and become even more overwhelmingly beautifully deep and chocolatey, blah, 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 blah. So it's just, oh, <laughs> um, it's just, I just love how unique it is and how unapologetically doing its own thing it is. And that's why there are so many different ways to do champagne. Champagne houses just have so many expressions of different grapes um, within their terroir, you know, and it's not and it's not limited to terroir, even though this is from a single parcel. For example, in Burgundy, they've got, you've got your Bourgogne, you've got your Merceau Premier Cru. Uh, there's no point, really. Some people, you know, a lot of Burgundian producers will have very different types of Merceau, but they're not as experiment experimental as they are in Champagne. For example, take Patrick Javillier, famous for creating big-ass Merceau. And he has, um, a, uh, you know, single parcel Merceau, such as Le Tillet, which is one of his most famous. But he also has one cuvée called Le Clouseau, which is the um, uh, blending of two parcels, one at the top and one at the bottom of the hill in the village. And that's very much a kind of champagne experimental blending type approach, because... Champagne and Bordeaux um, are very much about the blend, whereas Burgundy is not. Um, and because of that experimental nature in Champagne, that's why you get so many new styles and new interpretations. Burgundy is also almost more restrictive in that sense because, you know, you can't... What, what, no matter what you do, to a certain extent, in Champagne, you can call it Champagne. In Burgundy, if you keep blending everything, it goes down to Côte de Bon Village, and then if you do it even more, it goes down to Bourgogne. And then if you do it even more than that, it goes down to Vin de France, and you can't call it Burgundy, you know? So I guess that there is more leeway of Champagne in that way. Like, I, I've at least recently learned that someone is making white wine in Pommar. Who is doing that? They have to call it Vin de France, and that's cool and experimental. But, and it obviously amazing, and that's what makes me and who I'm exploring it with love Burgundy so much more. That's why we fall in love with it and write about it so much, because it is so weird like that. Unofficially sanctioned weird crap. Um, but in Champagne, they still have the ability to call themselves Champagne, but be a little bit weirder. Obviously, a single parcel uh, um, Blanc de Noir from two villages isn't particularly experimental, but it does show that it's still able to kind of bear the flag, you know, that white pomar isn't really able to call itself Burgundy because it's not really representing Burgundy. But this Champagne, even though it's slightly experimental, is still able to represent Champagne and claim a name for itself and a space for itself within the Champagne bracket and the umbrella, which I think is pretty cool and, uh, you know, something good for the winemaker. Yeah. Um, Paul Clouet's Prestige Grand Cru Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir, sorry, from Les Eaux de Chemin in Bouzy. The current one being a blend of 2007 and 8, and 
AG on the least discourse in 2020, is a fucking stonker. An absolute stonker, sorry. Um, and I think Blanc de Noir needs a lot more attention, a lot more appreciation, because these wines are truly great and just as traditional as any other form of the old legendary bubbly. So, I think we come to the end of our tasting section, and we shall now go back to Henri Marteau, who, you never know, may have been sampling boozy, boozy Blanc de Noir wines every morning at breakfast. I certainly would be if I lived in Rams. We're going back to his 24 Caprice um, for violin and piano, and we're doing number five now, which is Vals, or Waltz. Um, I do like these 24 Caprices because he basically um, experiments with different styles of music. Um, but, you know, because they're not all waltzes or they're not all symphonies or they're not all string quartet, he just calls them Caprices. So it's basically a series of musical compositions, much like... <laughs> Much like um, Paul Cluet is being very much experimental within the single bracket of Champagne, um, Henri Marteau was being experimental with different musical styles under the bracket Caprice. Um, and that is the definition of poetry. Creating something within a restrictive bracket that allows you to express yourself but then forces you to be rational and cohesive is the definition of poetry. And Paul Cluet and Henri Marteau are both doing that. So, um, I hope you enjoy the fifth of the 24 Caprices by Henri Marteau, and we shall come back afterwards to calibrate and ponder on our final thoughts on Blanc de Noir Champagne from Bouzy Grand Cru and the Montagnes de Rams. Thank you. 
Yay! Another lovely little rendition there from the man himself. Um, well, I've very much enjoyed this episode. It um, it felt a little bit different. I will say that, you know, I enjoyed following two narratives at once. Although, you know, you, you may not know the, the sort of traditional... You may not know the, the historical narrative of Henri Marteau or even Paul Clouet as a house because they don't give a lot of information on their website. It's just nice to have two different cultural expressions from the same area. While Henri Marteau um, why may not have been expressing the, Mont the Montagne de Rams, let alone Bouzy Grand Cru in his music, um, his father was a, a famous p uh, violinist in the town, um, and his son will have been influenced by that. You know, I'm not saying that there is a particularly there's a particular violin or classical style from this town, but uh, there are two. It's just two artistic expressions that have germinated from the same or, or arisen or, or um, been engendered out of the same area. Um, and I, I, I'm not, you know, doing any analysis or trying to come up with any particularly otherworldly conclusion. I just like the idea of putting these two ingredients together and giving them to you for you to react to, you know? I just, uh, it just feels natural and organic. So that's why I quite enjoyed this. Um, and I wanted to, rather than discovering a house or a style, I just wanted to sort of discover an idea. You know, when I was doing JP, obviously, you know, aging champagne and oh, is, is not uncommon. I mean, a lot of houses... Their, their current vintage is 08 or 12 or 13, and, you know, they're all pretty much doing the same thing with the same blend of grapes as their non-vintage, for example. Um, but it's just nice to see a smaller house experimenting a bit more, going a little bit more out there, saying, you know, we're not going to age it on the lease for seven years, we're going to do it for ten. Um, and we're not going to use all our grapes for the the vintage champagne we're going to in from 08, which was a good year. We're going to put some of it in our prestige cuvee, you know. Um, because I don't think they actually have an 08 or 12 vintage. I think they just have a boozy 2011 vintage. And that's their sort of current vintage champagne. And the prestige has taken the grapes from, from 2008, which is pretty cool and different, you know. And I think perhaps because uh, this kind of cooperative or umbrella has two houses, they, they have the liberty to do that. But I just think that while they're being extremely traditional, they're all also just doing something different, which I really respect. But the, the point of this episode was to promote Blanc de Noir as a style of champagne. If you don't like it on, on its own, have it with food. You know, a slightly heavier style of fish, perhaps salmon or trout. Um, also, leave it for a little bit longer. For regular non-vintage Blanc de Noir, obviously, you know, drink that stuff immediately. If you really, really don't like it, explore more from different regions. And if you still don't like it, that's cool. We're, we're all entitled to our opinion. We all have different palate tastes. But I would just urge you to give Blanc de Noir another chance if it put you off initially, because it is a very, very beautiful wine, a very unique expression of champagne, and just as traditional as Blanc de Blanc. Uh, many people won't realize that, you know, what the components are that are making champagne taste a certain way. But if you... Um, the likelihood is if something is really zippy, fresh, zingy, citric, it's going to be Chardonnay. And I always think that the, the triad of the three grapes, Chardonnay pr provides the structure and the kind of lemony um, floral element. Meunier provides more of the kind of sweeter fruit, a bit more of the kind of grapefruit-like florality. 
And Pinot Noir provides that kind of base note, the deeperness, the, the earthiness, and the meat from which the other flavors can bounce off and harmonize with. Um, and it's very, very important in understanding Champagne to taste all of these grapes by themselves and understand how they make up that final blend and what they actually contribute to a blend. Um, but also, they should be considered by themselves and drunk by themselves for what they are. And if you prefer, you can you could drink a Blanc de Noir and discover, actually, I prefer, I like this style, but I prefer in a blend, for example, 60 Pinot to 40 Chardonnay or 60 Chardonnay to 40 Pinot. So through drinking Blanc de Noir, you don't have to appreciate Blanc de Noirs by themselves, but you can actually discover another champagne style that you like through it. So it's definitely worth it. Whereas if you drink Blanc de Blanc, while they can be absolutely beautiful, that kind of... Um, construction element and analytical breakdown is perhaps less apparent. So that's why I think the Blanc de Noir is extremely valuable. Well, that was extremely satisfying. I am now on that note going to go and cook some salmon fillets um, to go with the rest of this lovely Paul Cluet. Um, and I hope you enjoy this episode very much. Um, stay tuned for more updates. There may be some administrative changes in grape juice um, alongside uh, format and stylistic changes. Um, so if you're enjoying the show, please stay tuned for that. Um, and without further ado, we shall introduce the last of our Henri Marteau musical inter interludes in the show. We're going to play a third of his 24 Caprice for violin and piano. This one is number 15, Valls Viennois, or Viennese Waltz. That should be interesting. Nothing too specific, just something lovely and beautiful to while away this episode.